Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Today's episode marks the second in our impact series, which is built around stories that capture the economic and social benefits derived from scientific research, and also try to capture researchers' role in shaping the human experience more broadly. For the series, we'll be looking at the people and organizations that really kind of bring science to people's everyday lives. And for the second episode, we were joined by Dr. Elaine Horn-Ranny, who's the co-founder and CEO of Timpanogen, a company that's developing hydrogels to repair eardrums and doing so without the surgery that's usually been required. Their technology is going to be featured on the upcoming season of NASA Explorers, which actually just began its fourth season on the 29th of January. I'll include a link in the show notes, but for now, let's go straight to the interview. Dr. Horn-Randy, thank you very much for joining me today. Yes, thank you for having me. Okay, just to get the conversation started, I hope that we could chat a little bit about Timpanogen's flagship technology, uh, Perfix. Uh, what is it and how does it sort of fit into the medical setting? Sure. So our company, Tympanogen, develops ear, nose, and throat devices and wound healing therapies. And our product, Profix, is intended to replace surgical eardrum repair with an office-based visit. So this product is intended mostly for children who had tubes in their ears because they had chronic ear infections. And we're trying to transition this procedure that would normally be a very invasive surgery into a very fast 10-minute um, office procedure. Okay, so this would be a case in which the kids uh, have had tubes in their ears for some re you know period of time because of recurrent ear infections, and now the tubes are being removed? Yeah, they're either removed or the tubes fall out. Okay, so the tubes are gone, and now we need to you know make a repair to the eardrum itself? Yeah, so um, about a million kids every year will end up with those tubes um, to relieve the ear infection, but either because the, the infection keeps coming back or because of the tube itself, um, some of those children will end up with a permanent perforation of the eardrum that will never heal. And so those are the perforations that we are trying to heal, to heal without doing surgery. Okay, and if you can take us back to the dark ages just a little bit, um, how is that you know, currently dealt with or, or previously dealt with um, you know, in a surgical setting? That was fairly involved, correct? It is very involved. Um, so for these patients, obviously they have a perforation in their eardrum. So it looks like a pretty minor medical issue, but leaving it untreated can lead to recurrent ear infections, which can affect the patient's hearing. And so even though it's a small problem initially, it can turn into something much nastier. And so that's where surgery comes in, which um, it's the same surgery that the surgeons have been doing since the 1960s. And it basically involves a giant incision around the base of the ear so that the surgeon can pull it forward and then apply a graft to that perforation to fill it and um, hopefully the eardrum will heal within, you know, two months or so. And so it's a very, very involved surgery. You know, it takes about two to four hours to complete, depending on how um, complicated it needs to be. And so, of course, the parents are nervous, and they have to, the patient has to stay over overnight. And it takes a lot of energy out of the um, surgeon, too, because the reason we were doing this non-surgical route was because when we were speaking to ear, nose, and throat surgeons about, you know, some of the things they wish would be different in um, their practice, they were the ones who said that we would really like to not do the surgery any longer because putting our pediatric patients under general anesthesia is detrimental for them, and there has to be a better, faster, safer way to do this. And that would be the, the technology that you've developed. Uh, what is that, and how does it work? 
So Perfect starts out as this jelly-like substance that can be um, applied directly to the eardrum through the ear canal and then spread across the perforation. And then that allows the surgeon to uh, control the placement of that material in the patient's ear. So when they like the placement of the material, they will then cure it using a dental curing light, the same one that's used to cure fillings. And so that jelly-like material suddenly turns into a um, more like a gummy bear type substance instead. And so that provides a three-dimensional scaffold that allows the surrounding cells of the eardrum to start growing into that gel. And so the cells are growing into the gel, they consume it, and the gel is eventually completely replaced with new regenerated eardrum tissue. Okay, and this is and this is then replacing, you know, uh, a previously very intensive surgery that required anesthesia and an overnight say and, and all that. Right, right. And so the, one of the gold standards for grafts for eardrum repair is cartilage from the patient's ear. But obviously the cartilage never gets resorbed. It stays in place and it's not a very good um, transducer of sound. And so it's um, and it's another involved surgery to harvest that cartilage shape it into um, a size that will fit into the perforation and then hope that the um, cartilage graft will stay in place. So in this case, not only are you avoiding, you know, a potentially lengthy and uh, intensive surgery, you're also getting a better outcome as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the really exciting things about our technology is that it's regenerating the original structure of the eardrum itself. And so it's not just a Band-Aid. It's not just a placeholder. It's actually helping the cells regenerate and completely replace the material itself with the same sort of tissue that looks exactly like the original eardrum. Okay. And I, you know, I, I hope we can talk more about it in a little bit and also about some of the wound healing applications. Um, but let's talk through the story a little bit. How does this kind of uh, you know, technology or idea come into being? Uh, you know, when did you think of it? And you know, where were you? And, and how, does, how does that process sort of work? Uh, I think with a lot of these things, it takes a little bit of luck and a little bit of um, opportunity meeting at, meeting at the right time. So when we first started um, thinking about this technology, um, it was actually before we'd even thought about the problem or anything like that, I was in the middle of my PhD in biomedical engineering down at Teeling University in New Orleans. And um, I was, my PhD work was focused on developing um, gels for directing nerve growth in three dimensions, which was good as a research tool, but um, was not directly um, applicable to patients. And so um, when I was about halfway through my PhD, I asked my husband, who was in medical school at the time, to look for any application for these gels that I was making in the hospital setting so that I could do something more clinically focused. And so about two weeks later, he comes back and says, oh, you should replace surgical eardrum repair with um, one of your gels to make an office-based procedure. It's like, well, that sounds brilliant. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm curious now, um, it's just, was it just sort of, you know, the supposition that this is a gel that, you know, human tissue will sort of naturally uh, grow onto as a, as a scaffold? Yeah, so it did start out with, a, you know, a base of knowledge from um, my PhD work of gels and materials that were amenable for tissue growth. Okay, and so your husband has the idea of uh, using this for you know non-surgical eardrum repair. Yeah, he did his a rotation through the um, children's hospital through the ear, nose, and throat department in New Orleans, and literally two weeks after, I said, "Look out for something that we can use our gel for in the hospital." And so that was what he noticed that 
this is a very involved surgery for most of these patients are under 10 years old. And so he saw the parents be nervous about the surgery. The, um, the surgeons themselves were, um, so keep in mind too, that these are surgeons who were telling us that they did not want to perform a surgery. And so that's how this really came about, um, was just a, uh, medical student being married to an engineer that had the right skill set and seeing a clinical need. Okay, so you've got you've got all of those things in place, and that's excellent. But then, uh, you know, I'm seeing a couple of you know numbered steps here with a lot of question marks next to them into how this becomes a company. Uh, what's that process look like? So after we had the idea to use a gel for um, eardrum repair, I brought in one of my lab mates who was also my best friend, and we basically hashed out a prototype over donuts. <laughs> And because um, she also thought it was a great idea. And so then we went to our, since we were graduate students, we went to the technology transfer office at our university and uh, told them about our idea. And uh, since we were grad students, the university owned everything that we did. But in exchange for filing the patent application on our behalf, they gave us a small grant to fund our first uh, prototype study. And through that, we developed our prototype tested it in an animal model and got the same high success rates as surgery using our non-surgical gel and procedure. Okay. And does the university continue to own the technology or is, or is that transferred over to you? The university does own it. And so we licensed it from Tulane. Champagne licensed the technology from Tulane. Okay, so you've got this. You've got the small grant, and you start to set it up. What's what are the next steps in you know What's the pathway from uh, you know having an idea and a proof of concept um, to getting this into patients' ears? So the next step we did was go through a bunch of business plan competitions. Um, so this was extremely helpful for us because, as you know, coming from an academic background, we didn't really have a lot of exposure to industry settings or um, how to translate technologies off of the bench and into, um, you know, patient setting. And so we um, did these business plan competitions and that forced us to think about the whole life cycle of the technology and the, com- and the company that we were forming around the technology. And uh, so we ended up winning about over $80,000 in free money through those uh, competitions. But we also learned an immense amount about our business and what we're what we need to do in order to keep moving forward. And, and what are those moves? You know, I, I have to profess that I know very little about what it would take to get a technology like this onto the market. <laughs> um, you know, kind of what are, what are the next things you do after you've kind of, you know, won these competitions, you've got a little bit of money to work with. Um, what happens next? So then we started looking at uh, similar technologies and what commercial pathway they took. So we knew that we were in the and throat space. And so we didn't, there were not any really, um, competing products for our technology, but we, there were some, you know, other similar, um, uh, you know, gel-based technologies that we could reference. And so we looked at the regulatory pathways for those technologies, and we ended up um, having a meeting with the FDA to better understand our regulatory pathway, and that has helped inform um, a lot of the decision, decisions that we've been making going forward um, as we prepare our technology to be submitted uh, to the FDA for their approval. And what would it be approved as? Is this a a device, a drug? Yeah, so it it is a medical device, um, thankfully. (laughs) So that's that's a very different uh, regulatory pathway from a drug, of course. And so, um, you know, one of the, when we were choosing the components of the gel, we picked things that we, we in our experience, um, 
were not going to be um, toxic. And so when we were having our conversation with the FDA and talking about our safety studies, um, it basically came out that we could have a very expedited um, regulatory pathway, which minimized, of course, the time and cost associated with getting to FDA approval for our device. Um, and so that's where we are right now is trying to finish up our safety studies so that we can submit to FDA next year. Okay. And those safety studies just depend on using, you know, generally recognized as safe uh, materials? Um, it's a lot of biocompatibility testing. Um, just to sh- and those are standard tests that FDA requires of uh, similar devices like ours. And what goes into that testing? So we actually use a contractor who they um, operate an FDA audited facility. And it's a lot of um, uh, implantation studies and cyto uh, cell toxicity studies. Okay, and so uh, you know, has this has the um, has the gel been used in patients yet, or is that something still to uh, still to come? Uh, our clinical studies will take place around 2021. We're hoping, like after we, after we have FDA clearance, we don't need clinical data in order to get FDA clearance for our product, since it is a um, fairly at this stage. It's, it appears to be fairly safe, and so we'll just get, um, I said we have to get FDA's um, clearance for that. And then we'll go into our human studies in 2021. So we've not tested it in humans yet, but we get emails every day from patients who uh, ask us when our device is going to be ready. Yeah, I would certainly be, uh, um, you know, uh, calling your phone number if uh, I had kids who were, you know, uh, suffering from recurrent ear infections. That's as a parent, that sounds like a, a, a terrifying thing to have to do to go through those types of surgeries. Yeah, and you know, we actually get a lot of adult patients too who have had multiple failed surgeries, um, who are just looking for any alternative um, that will help help them out too. Okay, and so then after your um, after your after your human studies are performed in 2021, uh, the product goes up for sale and you take the world by storm. Yep, that's exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> okay, excellent. And so let's let's talk about uh, you know potentially some other uses of the technology as well. So uh, you mentioned wound healing. Is there a, there a similar role to play? So we actually just finished up a study on the International Space Station uh, earlier this year, and um, as a tangential project to what we're currently doing, but we're looking at how we can start adapting the basic core of the gel technology to other wound healing applications, and specifically for developing medical devices for um, delivering therapeutics for long-term space travel. And what kind of therapeutic uh, application would it have in that setting? So we're thinking about when astronauts are in the microgravity conditions in the International Space Station, they undergo a lot of physiological changes being in um, basically not having gra- the influence of gravity for months on end. And so one of, the, you know, one of the issues that they have is difficulty regulating intracranial pressure. So when they come back to Earth, they end up with a lot of eye issues because of it. And so, um, you know, we can make some baby steps toward developing uh, medical devices that have very predictable drug release patterns and, you know, maybe using them as therapeutics to whether they would be regulating uh, intracranial pressure or any other um, you know, physiologic issue that astronauts may encounter while they're on the space station. And so this preliminary study was just you know, sending some of the gel up and getting a kind of an idea of how it behaved in a microgravity environment? Yeah. So when we started on this project, we noticed that no one had looked at how gels behave in microgravity conditions or had done a 
drug release study in microgravity conditions either. And so if we want to look at developing materials for um, space applications, there is a lot of um, research that other uh, investigators have done to indicate that gravity has a big influence on material formation and um, diffusion of molecules. And so we're you know, looking at how our gel forms and how the drug release profile changes without the bias of gravity. And so we are going through that data right now and what, you know, we're hoping to publish it you know, in the near future, but we did get some very interesting results from it. Okay. And so, you know, um, what's, what's next for Timpanogen uh, beyond the things we've already talked about in terms of, you know, human testing and a pathway to the market, et cetera? Um, well, the, definitely the trying to get perfects to market as fast as possible is our main focus right now because you know, every day that we don't have perfects available for patients, that's every single day that um, pediatric patients are undergoing this same surgery over and over again. So it's, uh, it re- it's really on us to try to make the change um, and push this product um, along as fast as possible. And that's one of the reasons that we actually founded the company. So Companion was founded by my husband, uh, Jesse Ranney, and my uh, best friend, uh, Paris Du Khoshakla. And when we founded the company, we did so because we truly believe that no one else is going to solve this problem unless we did something about it. You know, they've been, surgeons have been doing the same surgery for over 50 years, and nothing has changed since the 60s. So um, that's really the, what drives us and keeps us moving forward to help get perfects into the hands of patients as fast as possible. Okay, so with you know such an amazing you know technology coming out and you know the potential for such uh, widespread adoption, I often find myself wondering you know how big is a company like yours? I, I've I've been to your lab personally, um, but you know are are there you know five hundred people behind some you know trick wall somewhere all working hard at this, or is it still a relatively small group? We're still a very small group. We have three full time employees, including myself and um, several advisors as well. So. And we don't plan on growing very large either over the lifespan of the company. So a lot can be done with very few people if you can stay focused. And so, you know, how will that, will that necessarily change, um, you know, as you go forward into putting the product mm-hmm. on the market? We do plan on p- hiring, um, you know, several people over the next um, three years to help us, you know, get through our regulatory process and then actually into uh, the hands of the surgeons so we can help our patients. But we're also looking at, you know, more effective ways to distribute our product through distribution partners. And um, one of the good things about the customers that we're serving, um, which are the ENT surgeons, but they are a very small group, small, a close-knit group of people. So, um, you know, it's fortunate for us that we can approach all these customers uh, pretty rapidly through um, very successful clinical studies. Okay, so you're you're dealing with a relatively small, you know, audience of professionals who are going to be using this in the office, um, you know. So you're not, for instance, reaching out to, uh, you know, every general practitioner in the country and and trying to get them to adopt it. Correct. We'll look forward to hearing more. Uh, before we close out, though, I was hoping you know you could tell us a little bit about what the experience has been like making that move from academia to industry. When my co-founders and I started Tempanogen, we were all coming out of an academic setting. And transitioning out of the academic mindset and into an industry mindset has taken a lot of um, work and some, um, you know, good and hard lessons both. So it's been um, it's been a very good fun journey. And then 
when it ever does get hard for us, we think about, well, would I rather be doing something else? And the answer is always no. So that's what keeps us motivated to keep going and and work through all the um, ups and downs that a startup encounters. And I think that'll be a fantastic note to leave it on. But before we do, uh, which is tougher, you know, working in academia or being a CEO? <laughs> um, there's a lot more accountability on you when you're the CEO of the startup. So I would say being the CEO is <laughs> much harder than graduate school. Even though graduate school, I think, prepared me very well for a startup role in terms of um, being comfortable with failure and and being comfortable with the unknown. So both of those things are critical in making you know, building a successful startup. That's fantastic. And we'll definitely look out for more to come. Uh, Dr. Horn Ranny, thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.